welcome to the fit to talk podcast thank you so much for tuning in our aim is to bring you high quality episodes that enrich your life by providing you meaningful helpful and accurate information that is easy to digest with a whole load of fun along the way right now you're listening to one of our guest episodes which always feature a fascinating guest from all walks of life and today is no different we have an industry titan of a guest for you Oh, indeed we do. There is a musical theatre legend in our midst. So, he made his West End debut age 12 in Oliver. He's recorded five solo albums. He was nominated for an Offie and a Broadway World Award for his role in A Class Act. Also nominated for an Offie for Assassins. He's got a CV as long as your arm. Appearing in such musicals as The Story of Bart, Hairspray, Ragtime, Chicago, Les Mis, and one of my personal favourites, Bat Boy. What a banger. I love Bat Boy. Um... I generally could have spent the whole podcast talking about his CV, but it's the one and only John Barr. Hey. Good afternoon, boys. Good yes, afternoon. Yes, yes. yes. Um, we spoke briefly about your CV just before starting this recording, Johnny, and uh, Bobby was not lying. If we had listed everything on there, we wouldn't have time for an episode. <laughs> it is lengthy. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Do you know, I've never actually, I was teaching yesterday, and once somebody said to me, how many shows have you been in? And I said, I don't actually know. I'm going to do it over the weekend. I've got a couple of long train journeys, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'd love to know myself just kind of what I've been in. I mean, I know I've done Sweeney Todd five times and I've done Superstar, Jesus Christ Superstar, eight times in my career. Eight Recordings, times. concerts, the tour, um, uh, a concert tour of it. Yeah, so it's a show that's, did it on Radio 2 with with uh, Tony Hadley from Spanish about it and Roger Daltrey as Judas. Ooh. Yeah, that nice. was amazing. That sounds glorious. That was in, I sat next to Roger Daltrey and he gobbed up just before we started. And I went, you're right, see, that's my warm up. <laughs> and you went, and I went, oh right I said, you're right love that was, that was my yeah. warm up before yeah. this podcast yeah. <laughs> now before we start we have a little request for you sorry to put you on the spot with this it's part of our podcast we like to call liar liar pants on fire and it's one of my favourite bits uh, throughout this portion of the podcast uh, while we're speaking about your younger years uh, up until we reach sort of university or that time in I life I didn't go to university I know you didn't go I know you didn't train I'm excited Spoiler. to hear you about that <laughs> Spoiler alert, yes. uh, but we would love it if you could tell us a lie. One single lie during this time period. And Bobby and I both get the opportunity to guess what that lie is. And we want our listeners to take a guess too at home. And we keep a tally from all our episodes. Oh and man, I, I'm losing hard. Oh, at wow. the moment, I am in the lead. And I For do, guessing? Yes. Oh wow. Okay. okay. I better be good then. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we might. It's, uh, I think it's my turn to guess first. It is your turn to well. guess first, yeah. So that gives me a distinct advantage. Looking forward, boys, looking forward. Uh, does that sound okay? Yes, I've got a... Yeah, okay, yeah. A little hiatus. Yeah, go on, let's go for it. Yes, he's got one. Yes. We're ready. Excellent. Um, so we should start off. Where were you born? I was born in East London. I was born in Forest Gate. And then for most, until I was 10, I was uh, lived on a prefab estate, which is now Beckton. The Be you know, Beckton Galleons Regional, um, which was a shithole and a swampland, basically. And then the, it was like, it was like East Ham and then there was the docks and then it was in between, there was this barren set of land. And I lived on Eisenhower Drive until I was 10. And then at the age of 10, we moved to Skeffington Road in East Ham. And then um, I went to, so when I was on Eisenhower Drive, we was at Roman Road School, where I was a bit of a celeb at the, having the choir at school and used to sing and you know, the Christmas concerts and all that kind of stuff. And then when I went to, uh, we moved to Skeffington Road, I went to Latham Road Junior School. And within a week of being there, I was cast as the lead in Harry Nilsson's um, The Point, 
I played a part of Oblio. Mark, oh, Mark Tripp, who had been a bit of a celeb the year before playing the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, was furious because he ended up playing my dog. <laughs> Mark Tripp, whatever happened to you? Um, but that was amazing. Um, and I loved, I, I kind of liked that part of school. Then when I left Latham to go to comprehensive school, it was Langdon, which was a whole different kettle of fish because it was rough. <laughs> Rough. I mean, rough in the kind of East End kind of educational kind of way. And I'm not the brightest one on the penny, you know, but, but see, see what I mean? That's not even the one. That, I think we should edit that one. I don't even know what that expression is, but it's not that. Do you know what? I'm completely no, bought you in. Yeah, it. I, no, I, I can go more to that. I'm not the bright. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know what. I said so about bloody penny. I'm I don't not, know. I'm not sure where, where no. you're going. I've actually gone red viewers, just or listeners, <laughs> not viewers. Thank God you can't see this. I'm very red. Anyway, but yeah, I'm not the brightest one on the block, but I'm very, I'm very instinctive. I think as a human being, and even now, but I, um, I was very lucky, and I don't quite. Re- I was trying to think about this earlier on, actually. I don't remember how the music department became such a big part of my life, but Douglas Shaw heard me sing somehow, who was the head of music. And at the age of like 12, 13, I, I had this pure uh, boy, soprano boy voice. It was absolutely pure. And then um, I then went to Sylvie's, Sylvia Young's, um, was one of kind of, she'd been going for about a year. And then by the time I joined, she'd been going for about a year, maybe 18 months. And then I got into Oliver in the West End. But while I was at school, I was asked um, to audition for The King and I. So um, being a first year, I got the role of Louis, Mrs. Anna's son. So I got to sing this happy tune and do a bit of a puzzlement with, but in the, um, in the last performance, the Friday before we, we only did like six shows. I think I think we opened on the Tuesday and we closed on the Saturday. We did two shows. We did a matinee and everything was quite full on. Um, the girl who played Tupton lost her voice, Julie McCaffrey. So they said to me, Johnny, could you sing the role of Tupton? He is pleased with me. And I'd sing I Have Dreamed and We Kiss in the Shadow with Lawrence. Um, I can't remember his name. Very good looking blonde boy. Very good. I had a bit of a crush on him, actually. Lawrence. <laughs> anyway, I had a bit of, so I, I put on a wig and I went on and did it. I knew I knew the show very well. I was quite a musical theatre boy at quite an early age. So I knew The King and I. I did go on with a book, actually. I did have the script, but I knew the songs. And I got a little wig and I went on as Tupton in The King and I, as well as playing Louis. Your memory of this is unbelievable. Yeah, I can the detail is oh, incredible. I can't remember what I did in a show last year. Oh, no, no. no. But it's funny. I don't remember what I did yesterday. I don't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. In fact, we know I didn't have breakfast, but because yeah. um, <laughs> he bought me lunch. So thank you. Um, but... Um, yeah, but my early stuff. And then this Douglas Shaw, I, it's really funny because I always feel quite emotional when I, when I speak about him because unbeknownst to him, I, th- I don't think he realised what an influence he was on me. As well as having Sylvie's of an evening to go to, I used to, he knew how much I hated PE. So he'd always say, well, you could come in and do some work on the music side of things. I could sort it out music in the in the cupboards and all that kind of stuff. But then he started writing cantatas for me, which we took all around all of the local schools. So um, he just believed in me as, as a as a talent. Do you know what I mean? And kind of, and then we did the sound of music, and I played Joseph at school. Um, and then when my voice started to break, he was the one that said to me, "You really shouldn't sing." So of course, at school, I stopped singing at school, but I was still singing at the weekends for Sylvie. That's so interesting. That happened to me as well. And I was fortunate enough that my dad uh, is a is a singer. He's not a singer, and you know, he said, "You can't sing now." 
you know, for a period of time, like just stop singing. That's what he said to me. I remember that vividly. You can't sing. And I went, oh. Yeah. And there was this, it was the first time they were doing the, um, for me, it was the, the kids version of Les Mis. It was the first time that I'd been oh, licensed. Oh, really? Wow. It was happening in Cardiff. And I was meant to go to an audition for that. And my voice had slipped. So I'd been taken out of a show that I was doing uh, on tour. And um, because I couldn't sing it anymore, because I didn't have like a big crack. It no, just that went did. down. And then, yeah, I absolutely then had to just sort of stop for about a year. Wow. We made an album for Sylvie's called um, Old Time Musical Songs to Raise Money for Wilton's Musical that Roy Hudd kind of produced. And Roy Hudd was the Fagin when I did Oliver in the West End. And he coached me on this song called Jerusalem's Dead, which is about an old man whose donkey, you know, in the old days, they were like there with their forms of transport. Um, and we had a cart and, the, and it's Jerusalem's Dead was the name of the, the donkey. But and, I've had four of boys. I'm doing the recording because you only got one take at it. So literally you hear every note, every part of my range at that point in time. Wow. I'll send it to you actually. I've got it. I would love that. <laughs> he goes, I've had four of points and a magpie and stump, but two goes of rum. Just a We've got it here. Yeah. <laughs> we could release this. So, yeah, exactly. Oh, got it. We could oh do a mega mix. This will be your sixth album. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we love a mega my mix. My sixth album. Well, we do love a mega mix. <laughs> we love a mega I mega want to mix. touch on something you said actually. You mentioned that you... Um, you hated PE. Oh. Now, this is a very common thing that I think mm. I hear quite a lot. Why did you hate PE so much? He called me a fairy. And then I found out about 16 years ago, Mr. Agas, yes, you, Mr. Agas, you're a big old poof. <laughs> he was having an affair with the geography teacher. I found this out years later. He used to call me a fairy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And that's rich. So your dislike of PE, did that come from the teacher? No. I mean, to be honest, my, my sister's a sportsman in the family. My sister was a semi-professional lady footballer until she was in her early 20s. They just called a tiger. When she was a junior school, and he, when she also went to Langdon, she, um, I think it was about the age of 12, 13, she used to play in the boys' team. And all the boys knew, but the other teams didn't know she was a boy. So they used to band down, used to, um, what do you call it, um, what you do when you uh, put down your boobs? When you Is it binding? binding? Binding, binding, sorry. Uh, they used to bind down. And then one day, uh, one of the boys in the other team said, why is he getting, he went walked him through and it was just my sister Pam. And then that's how that, well, how that all stopped. And then my, she got into a girls football team. Wow. She was incredible. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't want to. And was that maybe the fact that she was so good? Did that make you... Uh, strive to want to do something else? Or? Well, I think, again, at a very early age, my, my sister used to go to dancing. Used to, I can't remember the name of, it was on Lonsdale Avenue, but she used to go. And then one day my mum took me and I just became, a bit, and I'm not, a, I'm not a dancer even now, but I just kind of went there and my sister stopped going and I, my mum would take me. And I think that's how all that kind of started. I think the other thing is what I have forgotten is um, my nan took me to see Scylla Black in Aladdin at the Palladium when I was seven years old of age. I was obsessed by Basil Brush, you know, I had a Basil Brush puppet that I got from Hamley's and all that. See, I remember all this shit. I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can remember all this shit. Seriously, can. <laughs> but that kind of seeing that at the Palladium, and you look, you've been on that stage, you know. I've I've done the Royal Variety a few times on the Palladium. But to go, there, there was a little kid. I remember we were in the dress circle. I probably got my ticket stub somewhere in my loft. But that just going, that was probably, there was that. And then when I was probably about six or seven as a kid, we went to the Stratford Theatre Royal to see Ken Hill's The Land That Time Forgot, where there were men in dinosaurs costumes going, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you, you know, kind of, kind of you know, the little legs and these big, di and I, that's kind of the theatre that I remember. That's so interesting. 
So looking at that from a physical activity standpoint, you say you then went started going to Sylvia's. Mm. Obviously, Sylvia's, uh, you know, trains kids in, in a lot of aspects of theatre and there is a lot of physical stuff that happens there. Like, was that really the first time that you were exploring that? that side of things? Oh, definitely. Oh God. Yeah. De- Cause, cause there's people like Shirley Burt doing tap. Um, and we had different directors and things. I mean, <laughs> when I went to Sylvie's, it was in the evening. She didn't have the school then. The school didn't happen till I was 17, 18. Ross Moore Road happened, but, um, it was in a place called Braiding Crescent. Um, and I, I funny, I often drive by there sometimes and it always makes you kind of emotional because that's where I did my first audition. I remember my mum taking me in and I went in and I remember Sylvie saying, um, I don't think she said these exact words, but he's got a great voice. But if he wants to be an Oliver, he's going to have to lose a bit of weight. And I wasn't, I wasn't fat by any means, but I looked healthy. My mum, we, we ate well, do you know what I mean? So I went on a diet. I went on a steak diet and I'd cut out bread and all that kind of stuff. Very, And then I went to audition for Oliver and I got into Oliver. Do you think that had an, any kind of impact on the rest of your life? The way that that kind of relationship with food in a very, very, when you're very young and very impressionable to, to hear that from somebody who you're looking up to, somebody who you respect. Yeah, no, I think it, and again, it was just, I wanted to, I wanted to be an Oliver. And I was told if that's what I had to do. And like, I'm sure, look, we, we're all in the business here. There are certain things you have, you have to do, which is what, you know, the teaching I, so many kids, they, it, being them is not enough. They have to, sometimes they have to fit into some kind of I hate labels. I hate labels of any kind, but they have to kind of, you have to be something, you have to be to fit into a box to a, de- to a degree. And I think also now, because I'm only five foot six and a bit on my CV, it says five foot seven. It's a complete and utter lie. Um, <laughs> just so you all get that. But um, being small as well, and I'm, I'm 57 now, I don't have a big beer belly. And I know the moment my jeans don't fit, I cut out the bread. I cut out the sugar. I cut out the honey. I cut out eating after a certain time. I've, I've done a little bit of inter- intermittent, um, fasting as well over the last couple of years, which has a very good impact. I, I know I couldn't do it forever. That's mm. not that's not a lifestyle. But to get me to go, I want to get back in them jeans, and I just you know. But, but I think being small. But I think yeah, and I'm very. I mean, I, I, Stefan knows this. I, I'm a pot noodle boy, not all the time, but I do. I'm kind of you know, I'm not incredibly chicken and mushroom. Oh, it's very ba- good. It's, it's a banger. Oh, no, spicy curry. Oh, spicy day. curry. You see, oh, you could be my boyfriend. We'd be great. There's still time. There's still time. I see the way you're looking at each other. Well, Bobby, you're not too bad yourself. You're not too shabby, darling. (laughs) I do like a bit of a bearded man. (laughs) Bobby's had a very sharp haircut. (laughs) Yeah, that fresh fade, guys. (laughs) He looks excellent. Um, So when we're looking at that, uh, you've had this sort of, um, actually even hearing about it, quite a visceral experience with regards to food and uh, connecting that to the industry going, okay, if I want to be in this show, uh, I feel like I've got to do this thing. Yeah. but you said he didn't like, I'm sorry, I'm fixating on this. You said you didn't like PE, but it sounds like you loved all of the physical stuff that you oh, had to do with I, I was, I could, if I could walk somewhere, I would, I mean, even now, you know, even today you sent me the directions to this, but I took the longest walk. I got out of Bethnal Green and, and I, I walked because I didn't want to kind of, you know, I kind of, it was a beautiful day. I kind of, that, that, that wasn't always the case. There was a time when literally I would get in my car to go around my corner shop. There was a time when I, I realised, and I was putting on weight actually, and then having too many chicken chow mains and the takeaway and all that. In the kind of the 90s when my I wasn't doing shows, eight shows a week, year in, year out. And you kind of go, oh, I can't be bothered to cook or I can't be bothered to, you know. So I'd go down there and, and I would literally get in the car, order it, get in the car. I don't do that anymore. I really, really 
don't. I mean, I'm, for a 57-year-old man, I'm in a 30-size jean today, I want you to know. <laughs> 30, 30, 30 leg, 30 waist. <laughs> There's Johnny's measurements for everyone. Everyone. Five foot seven. <laughs> the vital stats. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So we need to know. So what was it about the dance aspect of physical activity that you enjoyed compared to the fact that maybe, was it that atmosphere you said that, you know, he call, called you a fairy and maybe that might have been toxic. What was it that you liked about that version and didn't like about the other? Well, side? I think the thing is, I don't think any of us boys really were great dancers, like people like Nick Berry and Matt Ryan. I mean, we could all move. Um, I mean, I can still, I still say I sway better than anyone in the business. <laughs> the moment it starts to get to like right, left, right, left, it gets a little bit complicated, but I can sway better than any, can sway better than you, Bobby. I know I can. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, you. I know you believe me. I can tell the way you're looking at me. Um, but I, I just, it was that camaraderie. And I think just being around kids that all like-minded. Now, I don't think at that point we ever thought that we, because most of it, Nick Berry, Matt Ryan, Claire Burt, Jenna Russell, Francis Raphael, that's the people I grew up with. You know anyone that's in musical, you, or in the theatre, you kind of, Nick Berry went on to be one of the biggest soap stars on the planet, you know? And, but I didn't think at that point we ever thought we were just kids that, oh my God, we all had a common liking of Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand and Stephen Sondheim. At a very early age. We had a Sondheim group when we were like 14 and 15 years of age. I mean, <laughs> singing these deep, dark songs, you know, you're going to love tomorrow. You know, what do you know about that at the age of 14, 15, you know? It was being around people. And I think we all tested one another. There was a, quite a bit of competition there, healthy wise. Um, yeah. Also, going back to food, my mum would never let us leave the table unless that table was, uh, food was absolutely clean. I couldn't do, go hiding any peas under any potatoes. Going, I've eaten, because my mum would. We were very, and now I don't like to leave an empty plate. I sometimes can come across like, I'm never going to eat again. I'll be out with friends going, you can eat, can I have a bit of fish? Terrible. <laughs> I hate waste. My dad used to do that all the time. It wouldn't matter how many people were at the dinner table, he would finish everybody's food because, That's, yeah, it's kind because of, he didn't want to waste anything. Yeah. yeah. And it's all, you know, surely there's a, there's a background thing there, but you know, like that's why he ended up putting on quite a lot of weight because he would have a healthy portion himself and then he'd have everyone else's yes. healthy portion mm. too. Yeah, no, I don't like waste. I really don't like waste. It, particularly if someone else has bought you a meal as well. There's not, you know, sometimes you go out and I've got some friends who feed me very well. You know who you are when you listen to this. Um, we, and he, her husband would normally order and it will be a plethora. There's only three of us. It's like he's feeding the world. <laughs> you, you have a Chinese, you go, oh, we'll have some. And then, but then I can't bear. So literally I weeble home on the train going home because I'm going, I'm not going to waste that. He's ordered it. He's coming out of his pocket. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have a lot. I don't really think I have any relationship with food other than for me, like so many things. I know particularly when I'm working and you guys will get this as well is I do know that when I'm doing eight shows a week, playing something that's quite ferocious vocally or physically, I do have to feed the monster. I'm not so good about discipline and eating at certain times and eating certain foods when I'm not working or when I'm just teaching, which I should maybe because our teaching is equally trying to like my day in teaching up in Leeds. I wake up in the morning, I have to catch the 10 o'clock train. So I normally have a cup of tea, get in the shower and go I normally have a cup of coffee and maybe a sandwich. I'll buy another sandwich at lunch there and I'll probably have another sandwich. And then by the time I get home, which is like kind of quarter past 11, I'll maybe have a crumpet and a bit. Of, so I've eaten a load of bread that day. That's probably the most amount of bread I eat all week really now. Um, skipping back a touch, you mentioned earlier on 
that you didn't go to university or drama school, you didn't train. I actually know this story, but please tell us how you got into the industry um, because I absolutely love it. Um, I was in my last year at comprehensive school and it was in the days when the stage used to post adverts for shows in the back. I don't even, I don't, I bought the stage in years. Is it? I don't think they, I do they still do that? I've, yeah, I've not bought the stage and it in came years, up I remember my, those days. My friend Susie Fennick, um, who's a year, do you know Susie Fennick? Um, she's incredible. She's still doing the business and we've done quite a few shows in our careers together, but she was like my best friend at Sylvie's and she'd got into the tour of Annie at the age of 17. Uh, no, she just turned 16. So by the time she started, she was 17. And she went, well, if I can do it, you can. She said, you should come along and audition for Annie. So I went and auditioned for Annie. And he's, Peter Walker said, I, I think you're great, but you're too young. So then about two weeks later, an audition came up in the stage, auditioning people. And this is the most exciting bit. Auditioning for a cast members for the National Tour of Jesus Christ Superstar at, wait for it, the Prince of Wales Theatre. That is where Barbara Streisand made her London debut in Funny Girl. So I bunked off my history and geography exam to go and audition, not thinking I had a hope in, I was 15 and a half. I was a confident singer and I sang Barbara Streisand's Woman in the Moon. But the great thing about that whole thing, you queued up for hours around the theatre. I mean, it was so like how you see it on, on Broadway, you know, on, on films about New York, people queued. But I was in the queue with people that I'd seen in shows as a kid, you know. Anyway, came to my turn, got on stage and I sang and I finished and the director, um, he said to me, how old are you? I went, 19. Okay, can you come back tomorrow and dance? Uh, shit, there's another exam. I went, shit. Uh, yeah, of course I can. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so I went back, went home, got mum to have a good day at school. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I've done very well in my exams, mum. That kind of, a, <laughs> like, I was never going to pass anyway. I hadn't done any revision at all. Um, so then I go back down and then I get the job. And then on the first day of um, rehearsals, I get a tap on the shoulder again, come here. You can't do this job. And I went, why? You gave your child's equity number. So I was very lucky because Tony Young, who was the company manager, who actually knew my age, actually, because he, he, he was company manager when I was in Oliver. So he must have known I was young. So um, he said to me, I, I can vouch for him. Anyway, long short of it is, I did the job and I got my letter of exemption. By the end of the, the 30, month, uh, 30 um, weeks on tour, I got my full equity. And then my second show, I went into Annie as a swing boy. And I did it in London for a 14 week season and it went on tour. And then I did all the reps. And then that was kind of how my kind of career started just by people taking a punt on me, really just going, this kid's got something. And I learned, I learned the hard way, unlike some of the kids we're teaching. I mean, I, you know, do you, do you teach as well, Bobby? Do you- I don't know. I'm, I'm- don't believe I'd be very good at teaching. Well, I never thought I'd ever become a teacher either. It was not on my remit to be, be a teacher at this point in my life, but I I am. But what I, what I don't see often enough is in kids is that thing that I had. And it's, I asked some students the other day, I said, why do you want it? I just feel better when I'm singing and I have to, but for me, it was a need. I come from a very, very normal East End family. And in fact, I can remember my mum and dad arguing about me, you know, he's going to get himself a proper trade and he'll get himself a proper job and all that kind of stuff. And thankfully I put my hands in my ears and kind of covered my heart because I went, I'm going to do this. But also quite early on, and again, no one I don't think ever actually said this in a roundabout way, but in hindsight, it was basically, John, you've got this great voice. You're never going to work because you're not the best dancer. You're not good looking and you're not tall. But thankfully, and again, I think this is the thing that I think some of the kids these days, they don't have that chutzpah that's going to go, 
you. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And that has been my thing. I don't feel like that now about the business. I'm not going to lie. I don't have that. It's a very different need now. It's the way I own my living. I have to earn money. And, but in those days it was, I would have killed my grandmother and I love my grand. I would, I would have. I literally, there would have been a murder in East London by a 15 year old. <laughs> Sounds like a musical. It don't, could have all turned out so differently. Please don't edit that out. Keep that in. Thank, that could be your headline. Thank goodness you got that job. Yeah. No. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. Your grandma's grateful. Yeah. yeah, yeah what would have happened? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but seriously, but you know what I mean? I see that. That hunger, particularly when I teach 20-year-old boys, and I go, when I was 20, I was the youngest person ever to play Che Guevara and Evita. How Prince put me into the show. You know? You know? It's that kind of... And people like John Owen Edwards, who was the MD of that, ringing me up and saying, um, come along and audition. And I'd done a, I'd just done a nice telly job, actually. And, um, and I thought, well, there's no way they're going to... And I go along, and of course, I got off an ensemble and first understudy Che Guevara. And then... Um, I rang John Owen Edwards and he said, well, look, Jimmy Keane, who's the guy who's playing Che, has just had a heart bypass operation, like complete. And I knew that from other people that Jimmy Keane was Hal Prince's favourite Che Guevara. So I knew that he was definitely going to be doing the job. So I said to my agent, why don't we just ask them if I can do one show a week or one show a month or something, make it worth... Anyway, she rang Bob Swash, God rest his soul, he's not alive anymore. And he said, well, how many shows does he want to do? She said, well, what about two? All of them. So <laughs> Every single one. There'd always, there'd always been an alternate Ava. So Rhea Jones at the age of 18 was the youngest girl ever to play Ava. She was 18 years old. And I and we Rhea had the afternoon and I had the morning with Hal Prince. And it was, that was, you know, but so what I'm saying, these 20-year-old kids, I'm just going, I was in a show, I used to do a Wednesday matinee and a Saturday evening. And the following week, I'd do a Wednesday evening and a Saturday matinee. That's the way... So throughout the week, you know, throughout the month, you got to do eight shows. And then when Jimmy was off, I, I would have first, if my voice was good enough, I would do it. And then the understudy would do it if I couldn't do it. But that, to have the responsibility, I had billing. It said at certain performances, the role of change, which had never been done in the show's history, you know? And I realise all this now, how blessed and how lucky I was. And also to have a whole morning with Hal Prince. Can I tell you my Hal Prince story very quickly? Of course. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the show, how Prince wears, uh, uh, Che Guevara wears a beret and the, the jacket and everything. So I got there early in the morning and he, how Prince was at the stage room. Johnny, I don't need the costume, just the beret and the cigar. I went, okay, Mr. Prince, I will go upstairs, get the beret, but have my mic put on. So I do the sludge step before, and I turn around, take a puff out of the cigar before I, oh, what a circus. And he came down the aisle with a god mic, went, stop, stop. He said, Johnny, when you go on, please don't use a cigar. You look like Betty Davis. <laughs> That's my note from Hal Prince. <laughs> so again, I probably was the first Che Guevara that never did the famous puff before. Oh, what a circus. Oh, what a show. I didn't do that. I just turned around and went, you know, I didn't, he went, yeah, that was my, my, my other main note from him he, at the end of the whole uh, morning I had with him, he came up and he put his arm around me. And now remember, this is the other thing, as a 20 year old kid, I knew Hal Prince, who Hal Prince was probably at the age of 12 from all those cast albums of West Side Story, Fiddler on the, I knew that this man was a seminal God. He was godlike, you know, and all of a sudden this man's got his arm around me and goes, and he said to me, kid, he said, you're good, you're clear. You're fucking angry. He said, why don't you fucking smile more? He said, you're the only bastard in this piece they can like. Make them like you. That's the last time I ever saw Hal Prince. Well, wow. tell a lie. Then at the opening night party, I was having a laugh 
I was laughing and he came up and put me his arm around again, my shoulder and going, that's the smile I want to see. That's the last time I ever saw Hal Prince. That's the smile I want to see. Wow. And I've never forgotten that. That's incredible. I love that story. Uh, have you managed to tell us a lie? He's nodding his oh. head. Oh. And I'm devastated. Oh, I was I've... hoping you'd forgotten because I have no idea. <laughs> Neither do I. Um, but we're going to have to guess anyway. Um, so uh, uh, it's my turn to go first, and by Johnny, I, I <laughs> I'm very impressed because I have absolutely no idea. If I had to guess, we'll both guess before you tell us. Um, and if at home you want to <laughs> listen back and see if you can tell I'm as well, desperately racking my brains. I'm gonna go for that. Your mum forced you to clean the plates every time you ate. That's my guess. <laughs> That is a strong guess. Oh. I'm going to say that the recording of when you when your voice broke, I think that's the lie. I'm going with that. <laughs> Can I say now? Yes, please tell us. I never played Tupsin in The King and I. Oh, <laughs> of course. You should have guessed when it was the little wig. Oh. <laughs> Fool, Dixie, I'm good. Uh, that was excellent. And how was so much detail? It's because the detail was fabricated. Uh, well, I did run that past one of my best friends, who you who you're going who you're going to know, Jenna Russell. This morning, he said, "Donnie said I know you very well. You're my best friend." He said, "I'd believe that." <laughs> so I said, "I think. Do you think if I turn on my plate tops in and there's a corporation of King and I went, they'll love it." <laughs> I bought that. One hundred. I have one hundred percent. No part of me thought that was no, the right. No, I genuinely, I fully believe that. Oh, so no points for us on that. Oh man. Well, is that good? Well, that was excellent. Oh great. You're the first one to absolutely fox us. Oh wow, yeah. that's brilliant. We've we've guessed it correctly every single time so far, or one of us has. Oh wow. Um, the one of us being me. Yeah. That, that, yes, <laughs> yeah, you're obviously the in. winner. Sure. <laughs> um, thank oh, you that's so good. Much. That's good. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have a few things I want to talk to you about. Yes. You said very very clearly that uh, you are not a dancer. However. When we look at your CV, yes. there is one that really, really jumps out at me when you say you're not a dancer, mm. and that's that you were in Cat. I was playing yeah. Skimble. It nearly killed me. I know. It wasn't <laughs> the Gillian Lynn's production, so let's get that very clear. David Layton and Andrew Oh, McBee. David Layton. Oh, David Layton. Oh, my oh, God. Oh. I mean, if anything, that might be more savage, David well, Layton choreographing that. Andrew McBean, who directed it, asked me, and I said, um, Cats? <laughs> Um, and he went, yeah. And he said, well, what, what parts do you think you could play? I said, Buster for Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, I don't remember. If it was my idea about Skin Push Out. I said, I've always loved to do it. I said, because it's never going to happen. He went, well, we could do. And that's what basically David did. He, he, like, he did for Linda May Brewer, who's a phenomenal, she's in the Cats video playing Demeter, for her in Cyprus, because we did it in Cyprus. It was the most incredible cast. Louise Dearman was Grisabella. I mean, that's, Ollie Thompson was Monka Strap. Um, I mean, we're talking Stella, Stella, Stella people. I mean, it was just an incredible company. And the band, we had the full orchestrations. It was out in an amphitheatre where literally we had real cats. You know what Greece like? Mm. We literally had cats... It was so weird. During our sound chicken going, they're coming from everywhere. They're like, they, they're getting the jellicle ball all right, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but literally doing that number, we did 11 shows over a period of, I think, two weeks in the sound, out in the open in the, in the height of summer in Lycra. And I was, a, I was actually trimmed. I mean, I'm not, I've never been like, muscly in that. But that show, I literally come off after my number. And if there had been an oxygen tent there, I would have gone to it. Because you go, <laughs> skip. <laughs> it was like, but I loved it. 
So how did you, did, was it a conscious effort to try and stay fit during that production to know? Oh God, when the moment I got it, I literally, I was g- going out with someone at the time who literally said, no, you've already had bread today. Literally, because I said, I'm going to be probably having to wear lycra. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're going to reinvent the costume look of it. No, when we got there and went, John, this is your brown lycra. You know, I look like a dancing turd. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, which I didn't polish very well. <laughs> but um, yeah. so, did you exercise alongside that, or did you just go? No, yeah, my no. show fitness. He is was gonna- there was a David did a warm up, and um, the other dancers. I mean, David is fierce. Oh yeah. Um, he teaches at Birds. Well, he's just left Birds. He's just after yeah, 20, 23, 23 years, years. He's just left. And he's adorable and, he, and very creative and gone. Con- con- look, he's got um, some of the other people. The guy who played Gus, uh, Gareth Mason, who's not with us anymore, was a phenomenal dancer, but he was a big boy. But he just, he was great, like I'm sure with, with Gillian in the original company of it, is you go, this actor can do, like Bonnie has tricks, uh, Wayne Sleep had tricks, you know, and you just go, well, we can make that work in the show. Basically, David did his version of it, mm. you know, we couldn't cut any of the music. So we all, the, the Jellicle Ball was in it. There's a very funny thing online of me getting the Jellicle Ball right. If you type in John Barcats, there's a lot of expletives, but... Um, <laughs> Because literally we had just finished blocking it and it was the first time we'd run it and I couldn't believe that I had done the Jellicoe Ball. It's 14 minutes of dance. I've you know? done that audition and uh, anybody that knows my dance ability will hopefully find that. As oh, well, I've got to tell you this. So I auditioned. Now, again, this was, this was probably around the same time after I'd got Superstar. So I was like 16 15, 16. I don't think I'd done, I don't think I'd done Superstar at that point, but I went to an open audition of Cats on the stage at the New London when, um, not Chrissy Cartwright, who was, oh, I can't remember her name, Joanne, and Joanne, her name is Joanne, an Australian lady, looked after the show for many years all around the world. And she's teaching her. And again, I'd seen loads of people in this audition that I'd, I'd seen in shows. And there was this one old gay guy that got, he said, um, he said, um, she gets it, we'll do the, and he said, excuse me, I don't do knitting patterns. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I just, that's my, yeah. Sorry, I don't do knitting patterns. <laughs> I should remember that one. I like that. Um, so did you, when you were kind of younger, earlier in your career, did you feel any pressure to kind of push your dancing at any point? Yeah. And do you know what? And I kind of did. I, I kind of did, but I, it was never... Again, I say this to students as well. You do because I've been asking all these third years I'm teaching at the moment. They're all saying I'm not ready, and I said, let me tell you, in the real world, none of us are ever ready for this thing mm. because shows like Les Mis will be the vocal styling. It's, uh, Les Mis is like any other show, you know. Cats is unlike any other dance show, you know. So each show you go into is is a style and that you have to get your body and your voice and all that around. So I don't think any of us are ever prepared. So I just used to kind of go. I'm proficient enough. I'm not great with tap. I can fake tap. I kind of, again, I'm musical. So I, mm. I can, I just, all that detail with it. I just, that's my impression of tap. <laughs> can you see, you thought I was brilliant, didn't you? Um, is, I know I can fake it. So, but again, I, I'm a character actor. I'm mm. not a character dancer, you know, and also now as an older character actor, you very rarely have to do very little, you know, mm. which is a shame. But I, it's the one thing, if I'd have gone to college, I would love to have been in Gillian Lynn's Cats because probably with my voice and the way I could perform, if I could, I mean, there's no reason why I wouldn't have been in Cats if I'd have gone, had proper training and understood, you know, the terminology and 
Because I know when I did Aspects of Love with Gillian Lynn, who choreographed it, we didn't actually ever meet Gillian in the audition process. I think they always thought it was going to be a singing, acting kind of show. But there were two big moments in the show that were danced. And she adored me and John Thornton, who was the original Mungo Jerry. I would camp about and doing all these things. And she said, that's incredible, you're leaping. But I said, yeah, if I had to, I don't know how to replicate that. I can just do that because I'm free and I'm going. But I don't know, mm. I'm not aware of what my body's doing. I'm one of those people who go, so it's right, left, right, let's do that again then. Right, left, right. Then we do the arm. You know, I'm kind of... That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember when, when you told me you got Joseph, didn't you? You, you, you laughed about it at college. I, I did. I absolutely did because... <laughs> but you were fantastic. You were doing that hoedown with the boots and everything. You were fabulous. Thank you. That's very kind. And that was actually mainly down to Bobby's help. Oh, really? <laughs> Actually, credit to two people. They were, uh, outside of the production, obviously everyone that worked there on the dance side was fantastic and helped me out a ton. But then uh, in every break, Barbie was going over stuff with me. And at home, my partner was just constantly going over the tap stuff because she's a fantastic tapper. So she was just going, no, 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 do that again. And getting very stressed with me because she it would be so easy for her. And I was there like, I don't understand. No, it is, it's, it, it, it's, it is, it's like, I can't do Shakespeare because I don't understand. It's not something I've ever wanted to do. It's not something, again, I'm sure I could have done it. It just is something I thought there are people that do, you know, I've got mm. to that point in my life. And I think I've in stages of when you're as old as I am, you kind of, you go through these phases of going, yeah, I probably could have done that. I probably would have been very good. I just never really wanted to do it because I'm sure like, I'm like both of you, once I put my mind to something, no fucker's going to get in my way. I'm going to do it well, and I'm going to be the best at it. That's what you were mentioning, isn't it? You go uh, like that, Joseph, for me and, and various jobs for all of us, I'm sure you said you're not quite prepared, you've got the skill set there ready and you're doing everything you can to be, then the reality of what the demands of that job are come along and you go, oh, this all needs a step up. And it's on you of to do that in whatever capacity it is. You know, and this is the thing that I try and teach, and I'm sure you do as well, is the kids, because they, they expect everything comes their way. And it's, you, you have to work. You have to work. It's and you're never going to get any thanks for all that extra work you with your girlfriend and ringing Bobby and and spending hours. And I'm not the best harmony singer, so I have to. I can do it. I know I can do it, but it's not something that comes naturally. So I have to go home and study that. I can't. I'm not. I don't take it in, in that information in the room quickly. I go. You record it, and then I'll go away. And I by tomorrow I'll come back or the day after. But I need that time to take it on because it's not my skill set. You know. We've all got skills. I think, I think that's the thing. As you get older, you kind of realise exactly who you are as a performer. I think you start to know yourself and trust yourself for the things that you can do and the things that you can bring to the, to the floor. Absolutely. Like, <clears throat> like I know, per, from my own personal experience, I'm not the best at harmonies. I know that is my downfall, but yeah. I know that I bring enough elsewhere that to that's make, going to be okay. Absolutely. I just have to work hard on that to, yeah. in order to bring it up. And kind of support everyone else, but yeah. yeah. And I don't think it should be. I don't think everything should be easy. It's great that we have to, even at, you know. I mean, I think personally, going back to this moment for me personally, I've got a little bit of the fear about about working again, about learning. I'm sure I can, but you know, when you've been out of it for quite a while, you suddenly go. Hmm. I've been asked to maybe do something at the end of the year, and I said, "Well, if you if, you, if it's going to happen, you need to make a definite date because I need to start learning that. But I'm not going to start learning until I've got a definite because yeah. I that that will put the pressure on, you know. Mm. But it's like these self tapes that the kids have to do now. All we have to do is you get sent it at five forty five, and it's got to be in by eleven o'clock the following morning. You've got to ring a mate. You've got to learn the bloody thing. You've got to edit it, and and I'm not prepared to play that game. I'm just not doing. I don't for jobs that I know I'm not going to get. 
I think uh, it's important for anyone listening who doesn't do this or is currently training to do this, that that is not an exaggeration. That is, no. that it's is not. a, a constant. It's not. The other day, I've got something that I'm probably very right for, but I said that is, and I'm not taking a, a, a day off of work to do that for a job I'm probably not going to get because of all the things that are going on. And I just went, no, I'm not doing that. Um, so you mentioned a little bit earlier on about what you sort of eat now, but uh, with regards to staying fit and healthy now, you said now that you walk everywhere. So what we would call NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that's a really, really fancy term of saying everything that burns calories that isn't actual exercise. Do you ever, um, beyond all of the energy that you expend when you're teaching, which is a ton, I've been in a room with you doing that. I know that you're super energetic. Um, do you ever exercise or stay, try and stay fit? I've got a little regime with my, my dumbbells, which is not, you know, I'm not muscly, but it's just kind of, you know, doing my things. And it's just, and it's made this a little bit, because I've got a little bit of the old man boob thing going on. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of, but I have thought about doing it a bit more seriously. I really haven't, when you asked me to do this a couple of weeks ago, I said, he thought maybe now before I get to, because I'm 57 this year, maybe by 60, I'm not on about becoming, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but just actually, because actually my frame for my, it's all in proportion. And it's actually, I said, I don't, I don't really have blob. Do you know what I mean? So I had thought about it. So that, that routine that you do, how often do you do that? A couple of times a week. Oh, okay. So about that, half an hour. But so you do about half an hour a couple of times a week? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I do my press-ups. Yeah. Uh-huh. I did try to do them every day, but I just found, I mean, that's getting better. It is getting better. He's, not, he's, uh, yeah. he's pressing a, a yeah, rock-hard bicep. There is, bicep. There is some flexing yeah. going well, there on. there was a little bit of that. <laughs> Absolutely, my car key. You I said you weren't Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, I kind of, you know, it's also, I'm a gay man. I kind of, and that's the other thing. There's this whole thing about I'm an older gay man and all that kind of, again, it's all labels. I'm an otter, a, a daddy. and a, a, oh, I don't want to be anyone's daddy. Thank you very much. And I'm certainly not a bear or a, a oh, there's all these ridiculous names that gay men call one another. It's absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, it's not linked to teaching animal studies or the dramatic practice of that. <laughs> you do. So yeah, exactly. I teach animal studies and just to be clear, that's not what that is. Although I've got to tell you, when I auditioned for, um, you're like this, but it's a Bat Boy audition. Now, um, before I auditioned for Bat Boy, I'd had a very bad nervous breakdown. I'd been very ill for about just under a year. Something happened in my, in my personal life that sent me spiralling. So I had a breakdown and I never, ever thought I'd perform again. And then one day I went into a sex shop where I used to go and buy bits and pieces. And I said, you got any jobs? And the guy said to me, um, no, we haven't got any jobs for you, Johnny. You're a bit of a West End lovey, aren't you? Anyway, two minutes later, he rang me and said, look, there is a job. And I went downstairs and he said, this is a job. And it was making dildos. (laughs) I made dildos for about seven months. I I made all shapes and sizes of dildos. I made fists, I made them all. And they went all off the, I did that and very well paid. And while I was there, I got headhunted for Bat Boy. The, the English producer, Robert McIntosh, rang me, uh, Cameron's brother, who's a friend of mine. And he said to me, there's a part in this show you'd be really right for. So I said, really? And I said, but Rob, I said, yeah, I've been in a really bad place. He said, I think you're, you'd be great in this part. Anyway, I eventually go along and I didn't want to learn anything. And um, and I went along and I and I sang in the, the American church, we've all auditioned there, haven't we? That big hall. And I'll never forget, and this always makes me feel really emotional because it, it was such a moment in my life because I hadn't even, in these like 11 months, I'd not even la 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 I thought Johnny Showbiz had gone and he played my bell and I sang, 
uh, Where I Want to Be from Chess. And I remember coming alive, literally kind of like being reborn. It's, it sounds really wanky, but I really felt... And at the end of it, Mark Wayne David got up and said, bravo. And I said, yeah, it was fucking good, wasn't it? And then he said to me, could you do an animal for me? And I went, because you know in Children, yeah. Children. Yep. And, and I went, yeah. I said, give me a little minute. And I went... <laughs> Apparently, Johnny's got his hands up near his chest and his I did teeth my, are out. I did my meerkat and kind of. That's a fantastic meerkat. And it kept in the show. Uh, they even made me a costume. You see, Johnny's meerkat was definitive. <laughs> so that's my meerkat story after making dildos for seven months. Uh, there's, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> the, dil- the dildos, I'm still stuck on I that. know. <laughs> um, uh, aren't we all? Seriously. <laughs> So I had friends that come down and meet me for lunch. I said, you must come down and see where I work. I had some well-known leading ladies who I won't mention, but they just went, fuck. Because literally, they're, I had 35 moulds. I'd make half in the morning and half in the afternoon. They were like, you know, they were like... <laughs> Huge. Yeah. You know. Uh, um, I, I wanted to... Change the subject. <laughs> Slight pause. I think this is going to be edited out, but anyway. Uh, no, no, that's, that is staying <laughs> the in. The dildo section remains. <laughs> I... <clears throat> You touched on sort of mental health in general, and I think that's a really important aspect of what we talk about. And uh, you spoke about it really open, openly and honestly. But in general, what's been your experience of trying to stay mentally healthy over this extraordinary long career that you've had? You know, when working, you know, how do you stay sane when you're in a job working insanely hard? And when you're not working, how do you keep well, yourself? Well, I think we'll talk about the not working first is... It's trying to remember that you're you're still a somebody when you're not working. This makes for all good, makes for an emotional. Because we when you're not being fabulous, you kind of get forgotten about. You know, when you're then the rounds of auditions and all that kind of stuff. And that's when I was like properly in the business. I mean, I'm still I think on the periphery now, but that thing of how do you validate yourself when you're you're doing all this work, all these auditions, and you're going, oh, sorry, you thought you were great, but it's not worked out this time. And then looking in the mirror and going, well, who the fuck am I? What, you know, it's not bringing any money. It's not bringing money in. It's not making me feel good. It's making me doubt myself. And as you know, once you start to peel away and then you actually, you get to the crux of it and you go, I don't know who and what I am. And that can make, um, I don't know, that can make you feel quite empty. Um, oh, um, but it's just kind of, you just have to know, you have to know who you are. You, you have to know yourself. And I try and teach this to my students because you have to have balls, big hairy testicles, I say, even to the girls, they need to be big, sweaty and big in your pants because you have to have uh, a layer of, of Teflon that I don't really have, but I, I have to put that out. I said to some students the other day, I've done probably my bat, my final bat, bat boy recall. I was not in a good place because I was still very vulnerable at that point. And I kind of kept, I will I'll talk about that a little bit later on as well, but I was in a very vulnerable place, but I could go in and put on a face. And I talk about it in my classes is my fuck it bucket, my famous fuck it bucket, <laughs> because as we know in the industry, you're on a four week rehearsal period you can't bring all that shit to work. Your boyfriend problems, your money problems, whatever. You have to come. I go to work to work to be fabulous, to get away from all of that shit. And I'm very lucky as I've got older, I don't have it. And I never really had a complicated life. I never got embroiled in dramas and I've never had money problems. But, you know, again, in my head, 
I have a lot of problems. Do you know what I mean? My my head, I never shut off. I'm one of these people, you know me better than Bobby, Stefan, but I'm, I have a very busy mind. So I'm constantly questioning, doubting myself. And one minute I'm the fucking best thing on the planet. And the next thing I'm going terrible. You know, it's an imposter syndrome and you get, it's, it's really weird, but, um, or you just have to know yourself. And the thing is, I've been doing a lot of Eckhart Tolle recently over the last couple of years, particularly through the pandemic. Um, and it, it's hard. It's so hard. But when you're in the now, I'm in the now with both of you now, because I'm looking at both of you. I'm in the now and I because I'm in the moment and it makes me fall because I can't do anything about yesterday. And I can't do, none of us can do anything about tomorrow. And look what's happening. None of us know. But I'm having a fucking great, believe it or not, I'm already having a good time. I'm quite emotional at the moment, but. Um, I think when you live in the now and it's hard to do 24 seven day, cause every so often you go, fuck, am I going to pay my mortgage? Or, oh my God, I've got this to do. And the, I'm trying what I'm trying to do, which is why I'm trying to step away from the business is because I realize it's actually not good for me. That immediate 5.45, it's got to be in by 11 and it's got to be brilliant. And it's got to be, well, it's not going to be brilliant because I'm just, I can't, I'm a rehearser. I like to, it's not, and it's not acting. And also I now know from casting directors and producing that they don't look at all those tapes and I've spent a whole day and I've lost 150 quid and you're not even looking at my fucking tape. I'm, that's where I'm at. So I'm a bundle of, I'm a bundle of a lot of things, but I'm very joyous. You know me. I mean, I'm, I'm very good. And with me, it isn't an act. And when I'm really in that place, it's genuine. But I also, when I'm not in that place, I can put on a facade of it. But people that I know, I know you quite well. I tell them, I'm having a great day today. And I don't mind being honest, but I'm not going to bring it into a room of people that I don't know that need to know that about me when we've got four hours to learn two songs. Yeah. You know what you you said right at the start of this interview that I think that you're, you're really, really instinctive, you know, and that makes for an incredible performer usually, you know, access to whatever you're feeling at that time. Yeah, it is. That's what, that's all we've got. That's all we've got is, I call it Johnny's Box of Tricks because that's the whole thing that I go to. I go, oh, it's that kind of song or that kind of speech. Oh, I know, I know, oh, it's that, that job I didn't get, how that made me feel, you know, or that person when I got dumped or all those things, you know, there's, I, I've just said this all to my students all the time. If I worked in Asda or Barclays Bank, I might need to go and, and I have had therapy, but I might have to, but we're an actor. I can, it's a plethora of going, I can give this because it's truthful. And I don't mean about being wanking, putting my life on, on show, but it's going, I know how that made me feel. Yeah. I know, I understand that lyric. For acting students listening, obviously we're speaking about both emotional recall and sometimes sense memory. Yeah. To both of those things and exploration of that stuff. And that can be, as worth putting a little disclaimer out there, that can be difficult. You it know. can be. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of the mirror exercises with them students. Now, no one likes, I certainly don't like looking at my, I mean, you're both very attractive, but I'm not happy Thank about you. looking <laughs> at myself. I mean that. That's not a disclaimer. That's actually truth. They're very good looking young men in front of me. But it's funny. What happens though, you get these kids that, and they, they get, I say to them, you can walk away at any moment, but they have that moment because it's not about looking about what they're wearing or their hair or their makeup. It's telling the song like, you know, she's mine from Waitress. You, I've had some great moments with girls when they look and I'm going, just tell yourself. And they have, and all of a sudden they sing better because all of a sudden they've gone, all these girls, you know what? They're all looking at one another on Instagram and it's this whole fake world. And I said to some students the other day, I said, perfectionism only exists on a filter on Instagram. Real life, we've all got lines and crags and scars and, and that's what makes you so incredibly beautiful and perfect. 
because you're imperfect, because it doesn't exist. If you're striving for that as a performer, you're constantly going to be disappointed because it doesn't happen. You can't, you can only be in the moment. Well, I feel emotional about that. Yeah, I mean, it's true I, though, I, I, I totally it, agree. And like, I don't know, I like, I always, I've got some quite bad scars and I, for a long time, was ashamed of them and I was embarrassed by them. But then I, it came to a point in my life where I thought, no, you know what? That's my story. Like the, the scars are part of who I am and a part of everything that's made me to this point. So look at my scars. Like yeah. check. It's taken me. Yeah. I had a very bad car accident. I was 17 um, with Nick Berry. We would be doing to see Todd at the Watford Theatre. And on the way back on the North Circuit, it was November the 17th. And literally the weather was terrible. And this drunk driver just changed lanes and came straight at us. And I went through the window screen, didn't have a seatbelt on. And I've got 180 stitches through my head here. I've got about a hundred on here and I've got a big burn on my neck from oil. And again, for years, I, you know, a gay man, a young actor, I was always like this. I don't care anymore. No. I go, fuck it. I see because it's a story and it makes you interesting. And I just, and again, look, I think if I'd have been a very, very pretty, pretty boy, it might've been a different thing kind of, but I was always characterful. And I think I've got better as I've got older, not that I'm vain, but I think my face has kind of gone and losing my head. Well, not losing my head. Basically I was doing a production of the Mikado. And um, one day I woke up in, in Scunthorpe. They kept wanting me to cut my hair like short. And I, I literally went to, um, we were on tour and I woke up and I went, I'm going to go and shave my head. And I went to this barber and literally sat in this chair. Now, normally I was hoping he was maybe going to start with the sides. He went, yeah. And I went, fuck, I've got to do the show. And I went, well, you better carry on now then. But it was so, but what was so funny for years having, because I mean, my hair went quite bad because this guy pulled my hair back. So my hair, but all of a sudden, and it took me a good few years to get in. I had nothing to hide behind. I, had, I used to pull my hair down mm. and, and I had all of a sudden, I so this scar on my head was very, very prominent. Um, Did you get in trouble for shaving your hair? No, no, they <laughs> loved it. They loved it because it made me, which is what he wanted me to look like really, you know, but it was so, um, so now I have nothing to hide behind. I don't cover it up. I used to mm. cover it up. And I went to see a guy called Dr. Alexis Brook, who's probably one of the most, I don't know if he's alive now, but he's quite elderly then, but he was Simon Weston's um, therapist. And when I went to him, he said to him, why are you here? And I said, oh, I've got this mark on my neck. It's really, and because it, by this time, it started to become this huge thing in my head. This wasn't these. Mm. This was the one, the, the, the mark here. And um, I had not about nine, eight or nine sessions with him, which cost me a fortune. But, and then I basically realised, I thought, I'm the only one that's got a problem with this. It's, I was dating a good looking bloke at the time that didn't have a problem with it. I was still getting jobs as an actor. Sometimes they'd cover it up and sometimes no one would notice it. Do you know what I mean? And now it's not, it's the last thing I look at in the morning. I used to go to the moon and go, oh, it's still there. It's kind of like I'm expecting it to go away. It's so weird, but I don't know. I think it's, it's also to do with age. I'm older than both of you, but you get to an age and you go, this is a lot. I could go to the gym, but this is as good as it's going to get. I'm going to get more lines. I'm going to get greyer. And I know there's nothing I can do about that. Mm. I'm not having surgery. I'm really not into, I'm not that vain. Do you know what I mean? Again, if I'd have been like one of those boys that was trying to chase something, I'm not trying, I'm only trying just to be happy. That's the other thing. I just want to find some plateau of happiness. And it's sometimes it's momentary. Sometimes it's for days. Sometimes it's for weeks. Mm. And um, well, I now know what my triggers are going back to my, I know we've all gone around the houses with this, but um, I just know what my triggers are. It, for me, it's when I don't have anything to do. 
So do you actively pursue things to do to force yourself to kind of get into that place? Yeah, I'm very um, housework. Um, I'm very methodical. Mm. Um, and I think what I've decided to do when all my teaching, like with you, it kind of is going to kind of start to come to a bit of an end before September is I think I'm going to start learning some new songs. I just need to, cause I haven't, just as a test, cause there's no, there's no end line. So now mm. there's no focus, i.e. a date. I can just go, I'm going to learn a really tricky song that I'm song that I've always wanted to learn and just see if I can, without any pressure and just wake up in the morning and go, I'll learn another verse today and see if I can remember the verse I learned yesterday. <laughs> cause don't you do that? You learn something, you go, go you go, all the time. I, I had that recently in the I, show. Yeah. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, that, I don't remember my first line. I can't well, wait. Can't oh, wait to sing this. Oh no. my goodness, I did well, that in Matilda, and I actually I'd been on playing. I was understudying Miss Trunchbull and Mr. Wormwood for I think about five weeks, and I hadn't played my normal track, which was the mm. Escapologist, for that whole time period. And so when I actually went back to it, by this point I'd been playing that part for a year, so oh no part of me thought I needed to look over no. it again. I went oh. back and there was this big bit where he bursts through this door and runs out into the, the middle of the stage and Matilda's next to him. And he, um, I needed to then sort of start saying this speech about this furious speech. And I ran out, looked at the audience and went, no idea. I have, I have absolutely no clue what, what it is. And it's timed to music. Oh. So I couldn't even try and get myself out of it. Oh, now, it's just giving me apoplexy. It was, it was a nightmare come true. And I was out front and I was wearing this brimmed hat and I just dipped the brim a touch. <laughs> and I was really lucky that Matilda says the same lines at the same time as me. And she said the first, normally, you know, they have to wait and you do it together. And she was obviously far more professional than I was at this point. And um, she started, she said the first few words and I managed to sort of immediately wow. click back in. But I was rescued by an 11-year-old well, girl. God. Those Matildas are amazing. Do you know, you saying that, I remember my very last, the, the last Saturday night of Bat Boy, um, I, everyone come to see it. I had loads of, my, my American friends came over to see the last night. My mum and dad were there. And I remember standing in the wings. I'd done the opening number and I had those bloody birds around my neck with my gun and everything. And I, I said, what's my first line? <laughs> Literally, she had to give my first, I was all right once ago. Um, that's the other thing I tell all my students now. I sometimes stand in the wings and I do the show that I do called about Lionel Bart, the story of Bart. The end's on the overture. And I literally, in the wings, I cross my fingers and I go, anything. And I because I know once I'm on this, something will happen. Yeah, yeah. It's that fear of getting from your dressing room to the stage that when you just go, I don't know this, I don't know, you know? And also, because I know that show well enough now, there was one show when dear old Lindsay Haightley came to see it in um, the Radlett Centre. I came out and said, I want to whisper. And I started to sing the second verse first. And I thought, I can get out of this. Then I suddenly realised it goes to the key change and I don't know. The so I went, boys, boys, boys. I said to the band, boys, boys. Do you know what, ladies and gentlemen? And Because I know this show so well. And I said, um, you know this song I'm singing? He said, I've never been happy with the lyrics. And last night about midnight, I wrote some. They're over there on the piano. <laughs> It was the only song in the chart that didn't have the lyrics. He went, there's no lyrics on this. I went, yeah, they're great lyrics. And I'm thinking, just, but, 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 and then Lindsay said to me, she said, did you, did something go wrong? I went, no, no, no. She went, it did, didn't I? went, yeah, it did. I said, I didn't know what I was saying. But again, again, as a pro, I know I had to kind of get out of those things. I yeah, mean, if it had been yeah. time to music on that, it would have been a different thing. But that show was written for me. I've rehearsed it. I kind of know it. But that was one classic Classic moment where you just go, 
I can't get out of this. So I went, boys, boys, just stop. And then he went, there's no lyrics on this chart. I went, we need to get lyrics on this chart. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a, an oddly specific question, but uh, jumping back to you doing workouts at home with some dumbbells. Yes. Do you have, uh, do you play music when you do that? I do. And now, is there an embarrassing or guilty pleasure song? Well, I don't think it's embarrassing. I think... Um, <laughs> No More Tears by Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a banger. Because it starts with, you know, and then... We've got a da, da, full da, da, aerobic yeah. Oh, I'm show giving it for like, 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 like put on acid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's get Mr. Motivator yeah, no. in here. Um, uh, continuing our really specific questions <laughs> yes. now at the end of this. Um, we do a little section called Get in the Bin. Okay, and that is about something to do with wellness or the health industry or anything that you can think of, even connected vaguely to those things, body image, mental health, things like that, that you wish wasn't a thing. Uh, something you would... Get in the bin. That's right. <laughs> do you know, because I'm quite new to Instagram, it just, it's this it's this thing, I think one as, as a gay man, and I try not to be you know, talking about, but you see these boys and you kind of think... I. Should I be like that? And I, I say to the girls about the Instagram filter with, you know, there's some girls that I teach that don't have the best skin. And, but, and you see their, prog- their, their their pictures and that, and you're going, but that's not you. Why didn't you put, but you know what social media is like. Mm. So I would say get all that shit in the bin, seriously, because it's not, it's not good. And it's completely unreal. I mean, look, you work out and you look like that. But I, I see that and I kind of go, am I, I it makes you go, I'm terrible because I don't do that. I see what you mean. So image-based social media. Image-based. So like Instagram really, and then I I guess some aspects of Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, do you feel like... It, do you feel like Instagram has had a negative effect on the industry as a whole in terms of that body image? Yeah, because I don't think it's... Look, obviously, like you, you work out, you were, And I know a lot of people do, but there are a lot of people that don't that I then kind of judge themselves by that. I don't, I don't do it all the time. Again, it's one of those little moments. You've only got to be feeling slightly, and social media can make, can send me spinning. You know, you start to see people, they're up for things or they're posting, you've got, and you're going, um, it, it can be very detrimental, I think, to, and that, that, the mental health group that I used to run in person is now just on Facebook called Company, where, um, uh, which I've been doing for about four years now, is, it's it's for that very reason that it was all about social media. How, some as positive as it could be, it was equally as destructive as it was positive. Um, does that still run, Johnny? Yeah, on online. I stopped doing the meetings because just before the pandemic, the me- people said they would come and then I'd pay and people wouldn't come and all that kind of stuff. So we took it online. I, at some point, I might do it annually, maybe every three months. Just have it. My my initial plan was never about having a rent. It became about a rent. People rent coming and some terrible things came out about bullying in the workplace on big shows and big tours that came out. That again, there was no no one professional in the room. It was just interesting to hear some people rant. My thing was always to be distraction techniques. So those people that are having a bad time to come to somewhere that where they could have a piano, they, if they'd learned a speech, they could get up and to get you out of your head. It was never, but it became in the end about people mm. venting. And and then, as I said, I started booking places and people wouldn't turn up and, and I went, this is not fun anymore. So it went online. And can people still access that online? You can say, yeah, it's called company. Yeah. 
Where, where would they find that? On Facebook. I don't do it anywhere else. It's just on Facebook. So it's like a group on Facebook called yeah, Company. Company. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Was, was there something that, what drew you to doing that? What drew you to starting? A friend of mine posted something who, and I thought it was about her, who's quite well known. And it wasn't her. She just reposted. But because when I saw it, it was quite early in the morning. And I went, this is the perfect excuse. To, I've been thinking about it for quite a while. Because again, suffering a little bit. I mean, again, I've never been on medication. I've never been on antidepress- antidepressants. Because I, the thing for me about that stuff is... What, you, what is it covering up? I want to know kind of, so I, I learned about my triggers and the things that can make me feel. And I now and I go, oh, I've had a trigger moment. I've got to be aware that I could now go, you know. But again, I'm in check. I've got great, a great network. I've got about four really amazing friends. I've been very open with my mum and my sister. Because I, again, I never want to be that friend when they ring up and go, oh, so I'm very gingerly about when I am feeling in that place. And inv- invariably, it will take me a long time before I will ask for help or say, oh, do you know, what? I'm not so great because I don't want to be a burden, mm. you know? Yeah, I'm the first person to say to people, call me anytime. And I really genuinely mean it. But I think me just because me being me, I just don't like to. Also, I'm I'm inherently a loner. I'm a sociable loner. I'm incredibly great around people. I'm equally 95% of the time very happy being on my own. I mean, genuinely. I've learned the difference between loneliness and alone and solitude. Solitude is chosen. I just go, I don't want to be around people today. I'm quite happy doing my housework, watching a bit of Netflix, doing my bit of homework or stuff, you know. I'm not even, I mean, I've never been a drinker. I've never been a socialiser when I'm working either because normally – I was always a money note boy and I don't really, I'm not a technical singer. So I was vocal resting before vocal resting was ever cool. When I did Evita, <laughs> if I, on those, when I particularly did a whole week as Che, you wouldn't get me going to the grapes. When we did it in Manchester, grapes was the pub next door where all the people from Corrie used to go and the people from the palace. I would never go in there knowing I had to sing that. I'd go home and wouldn't talk all day, but, I, but that was just the way. Now it's a thing. Vocal rest mm. is the thing. And I don't think, I was aware of that. You know, I kind of, I just went, no, I have to got to preserve this because I've got to do the job. I might be out of work for another year. I can socialise and do all that when I'm out of work. That's how I've always been about socialising. I don't, I've never been drunk in my entire life. I've had three glasses of wine on the last night of a play that I did for Alan Akebourne and he brought in this bottle of wine, which was like proper vintage. And I was glugging it down because I decided to stay that night and go drive back the following morning. So I'm sitting having a drink and that was three glasses of wine, like big glasses of wine. I remember walking home, talking to my dad and God, I'm not even religious, but I remember, but I wasn't drunk, but that's the drunkest I've ever been in my entire life. Three glasses of wine would, uh, would probably get me quite drunk. (laughs) That would be in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that's for me, just, I mean, they were, but they weren't the little glasses. Mm. They were bigger. And this was proper, very expensive, proper wine, you know, mm. if there is such a thing as proper wine. But. Yeah. Um, I'm, I believe there is. Um, but one final question. Yes. This is serious. Look at your face. You've suddenly gone very serious. One final question. One final question. No, it's probably my favourite. Um, I, I'm wondering how to phrase it because you have so much knowledge to uh, share and impart with people. But really what I'm, what I'm asking is, what advice do you have to give people, maybe starting out in the industry, to make their experience of it better, like healthier? You know, how, what have you learned that you could pass on to say, hey, here's how this is going to be less 
difficult for you? Make it simple. That's the one thing. I think so many things out of these colleges, the singing, the acting, everything is so complicated. There's always, and I'm always going, how can you make this simple? And that's all I can say is make it simple. That's the way, particularly through this, because I had COVID for five months. I think I told you I was very sick. I really thought I was a goner. I mean, I wasn't, but I was that ill. The cough was relentless. I lost a lot of weight and I, I was on my own. And there were a couple of times you're thinking, is this it? Is this, and I lost a couple of friends during that time who were very healthy. One of them was younger than me. One was only a little bit older than me. Um, and I felt very, that's, I suppose I went through that five months uh, of everything from quite happy that I wasn't infecting anyone else. I was quite happy on my own, feeling incredibly alone and lonely, you know, going, oh my God, this is really, thank God for FaceTime. But then there were other days that I just, I didn't have my phone on. I just, I was so in my head thinking, I think I might die. It was awful. It was really awful. And, I, and that's not quite gone. So I still wear my mask. I'm still really a little bit funny about it, you know? Um, oh, but going back, I think just make it simple. Know your trigger points. Be humble. Listen. Listen to the old people, as I always did when I was younger. All those incredible people. I mean, when I was in Superstar, I was probably the youngest person in that company by 15 years, which is quite a big... There was Most people in that company were 23, 24 I was, I was 16 and I learned a lot. I listened a lot. I would ask a lot of questions, particularly when I got into Annie, because there were people, there was a guy called Kevin Scott, who was a, he had been a Broadway star. He was a juvenile on Broadway in the fifties, sixties. Um, he starred in a show called Fanny and he, I just did, I can't believe I just said that. He started in a show called, he did. He, sorry, that, that, that just made me laugh, sorry. That just made me laugh, sorry. But he did, he started a show called Fanny. We handled it really well. Yeah. No, no, sorry. I didn't, sorry. I'm glad it was um, you. Yeah. yeah, sorry. So I just realised what I said, I thought, that sounds really funny. Um, but I was around him and he'd been around all these greats. He'd been around Merman, he'd been around Mary Martin. And that's the other thing, I don't see the kids these days wanting to know what it was like when I worked with, or I very rarely, and you maybe you've noticed this as well, even though you're younger than me, is I don't see kids in the wings anymore watching. I was obsessed. When I worked with a guy called Charles West, who was the Daddy Warbucks, he'd played Man of La Mancha in London. I knew of his career. I knew who he was. These kids, I said to a student the other day, I said, God, you remind me of Tudor Revere. She went, who's that? How can you not know? How can you not know who Cheetah Rivera is? Wait, who? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you're dead to me. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I kind of go, I don't know. I just, I think keep it simple, be humble, be nice. There's a time and a place to share. And I don't think the rehearsal room and the audition process, or uh, if you're sharing a dressing room, don't bring that into a, a group of girls getting ready for a, a show. Don't bring all that in, you know. And I certainly don't want to hear or your gripes in the wings, just as I'm about to go on stage, your, the row you had with your boyfriend or your mum or your agent. I just, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just me. I go to work. I think my dad taught me this. You go to work to work, you know, be a nice person. Yeah. yeah. Be, be nice. 
be that person. I mean, I've, I've, I've said to, this to some students over the last few years. Over the last couple of years, I've reconnected to some old, these older directors that, and they said to me, you always got the job because one, we knew you could do it, but your, your track record before, because you know what, that's the other thing. You, all, all you kids, if you're listening to this, people talk, we as teachers talk, we've got agents, we know directors, we go, well, I'm teaching this great kid. So, and it invariably isn't just about your talent. It's about, she's great, but oh my God, she's such a great kid. And it's not about your great voice or your great looks or your, it's about, she's a really lovely kid. Be that person. Because I think that's a person without blowing my own trumpet. I think that's that person I was. And I think I still am, you know? That's a great piece of advice. I, I think that's, yeah, spot on. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. And thank, thank you, you boys. so, 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 so much for coming to do this and being our guest today. Uh, I can honestly say it's been a pleasure. To it have. really has. I mean, it's been kind of across the whole thing, like so much fun and then just some really fascinating insights. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you for your openness and honesty and in speaking about things that are, uh, you know, not necessarily the easiest to talk about too. And also, uh, you know, just bringing your wealth of experience. We could talk to you for the next three hours, but um, we thank will you. have to have you on again at some point. And for those of you at home, thank you for listening to us here on the fit to talk podcast. Fitness and wellness does not have to be boring. So please, please, please tell your friends and family about us and also like, share and subscribe for our future episodes. Find more information on our website, www.fit-2.co.uk or find us on social media at fit2 underscore talk on Instagram. If you have any questions you'd like answered by us, please feel free to get in touch on there. And thank you again for listening. And if you like what you've heard, we've been fit to talk with me, Steph. And me, Bobby. And if you didn't like it, we've been Joe Wicks. Peace. Peace.